I have a question for you. I would like for you to give it some serious thought. I want to get inside of it and look at the many contours of this question. Here it is. How do your friends help you mature in Christ? That's the big question that I want to tackle in this podcast. Welcome welcome to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for being here. I want to talk about your friends, your friend list, wherever that may be, whoever they may be. Maybe one of the ways that you can think about this is you can take a white sheet of paper in your mind and and draw a stick figure of you and you put it right in the middle of it. And then you begin to identify your friends and they would be circling around Uh, that stick figure of yourself, however many that may be, one, two, three, 10, 15 friends, not talking about them cyber friends, they're not real. I'm talking about your real friends, FaceTime friends that you interact with, those that know you and you know them. Who are they? And again, my question is, how do your friends help you mature in Christ. Maybe the friends that you have are cyber friends. Well, you need to work on that because at your best, you're only presenting a portion of yourselves to them because you can't relate in a 100% kind of way, in a total revealing way in cyberspace. And if that's all the friends that you have, well, then you do have a lot of work to do. But I want to talk about real-life friends, those associates of yours, those companions of yours that you interact with on a daily basis. And the question is, how do they, those people that are circling your stick figure, how do they help you to mature in Christ? And so let me start the podcast by, well, let me ask you, three questions. Number one, who are your friends? Just make a list. Maybe this is just a mental note. Just work down a mental list. Who are your friends? And then number two, which is the big question of the podcast, how do they help you to mature in Christ? And so what are they doing? Are, are they pushing you toward Jesus or, they, or do they have a rope around your waist and they're pulling you away from Jesus? And then my third question is, well, you interact with them in context. You have different contexts where you engage your friends. And so what context have you created that help you pursue Christ together? Now, getting together as a small group is a fantastic, or it can be a, a fantastic context You gather and you help each other. You spur one another on to loving good deeds, like what Paul, uh, like what the Hebrew writer was saying in chapter 10, verse number 25. Or as you have heard, iron sharpens iron. So you come together as a small group, but there's many other contacts that you can have, many other places and ways in which you can relate to each other. And so my question is what context have you created to help? you all, to pursue Christ together. Now, as you think about this, I I want to share a verse of Scripture with you about the importance of companions. And so as you look at that piece of paper in your mind, or maybe you have sketched it out uh, on a real piece of paper, and yourself in the middle and your companions that are surrounding you, I want you to think about this verse from Proverbs 13.20. The writer said, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools, those people that surround you, let's say that they're fools, 
and you are a companion with them, the companion of fools will suffer harm. You are going to suffer harm. And so the big question is, do you hang around with fools as you look at your friend list? It sounds harsh, and I understand that, especially for postmodern sensitivities, but it's still a valid question that you need to ask, that I need to ask. The fool is not a person who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. It's not, it's not that the fool is ignorant. Paul wrote in in Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that the Gentiles who do not have the Bible, do not have the law, do not have the Old Testament, that that Gentile, they have the law in their hearts. It's written on their hearts. They accuse themselves and excuse themselves. And so the fool is not an ignorant person. The fool is not a person who does not know the difference between right and wrong. The fool gets morality. Even Satan gets morality. His problem is, that he doesn't care. That makes that individual even more dangerous. I mean, if the person was ignorant and just truly did not know any better, that would be one that, that would be bad enough. But if you have a person that knows the difference between right and wrong and they always choose wrong and they and they have that rope around you and they're dragging you down the wrong path, well, that's doubly, triply bad, because if you hang with that kind of person who's pulling you in the wrong direction, you will be hurt by that kind of person, plain and simple. The person who understands how God wants life to happen, the person who understands the direction that God wants them to go, and they're willing to follow the Lord's plan, well, that's a wise person. And I hope that as you think about your circle of friends. I'm thinking about mine right now, and I, I would say that that my friends, the people that circle me, are not pushing me toward the devil, or they're not dragging me toward the devil. The people who surround me, uh, they love me, they care about me. Some of them speak into my life, and and they want me to walk down a wise path. The individual who knows better but chooses to go down the wrong path is contrary to God's plan, and in Proverbs thirteen twenty could not be. I don't think it could be clearer that that individual will suffer. That individual will will suffer harm. When I was a teenager, I chose to hang with with people who consistently made terrible decisions. You could say, I mean, the way we would say it back then is we ran with the wrong crowd, and I ran with the wrong crowd. And guess what? In time, I was making bad decisions, too. And I, I don't want you to hear in what I am saying that, that I'm blaming them for my wrong choices, but I have to admit that my associations didn't help me. We call them shaping influences and they were an influence, and they were shaping me, but I could have stood up at any point in time and said, no, I'm not going that way. In fact, I did when I was 25 years old. After the Lord regenerated me, I began to say no to certain people, even family members who were trying to pull me down a wrong path, and then the more I said no, those people began to separate from me, and it's kind of like a replacement principle. I wasn't left in a vacuum without friends that I began to to find new friends. Uh, kind draws to kind, 
and my heart was wicked, and I was drawn toward wicked people. Then God regenerated me, and I then I began to be drawn toward people who love God. I wasn't left in a vacuum all alone. There was a replacement principle that was that was fully engaged at this point. I am there is a biblical formulaic pattern pattern here. You hang with fools, you you'll become one. If you hang with people that love Jesus, well, you got you got a pretty good chance of becoming a a God lover. And so the big question in this podcast is who speaks into your life? You're not as independent as you might think. Just look again at that mental sheet of paper and assess the crowd that you hang with, and you'll notice that you are like them. Now, I need to make a caveat here, uh, because I can hear some of you saying, well, I've got some people that I hang with I can't get away from. Uh, Like, say, maybe uh, people that you work with. You work a job, and let's say you work with some people that really just hate God, and you can't get away from them. I understand them. That's not the crowd you want to assess. And honestly, you could be a person that loves Jesus with all of your heart, but your family is of the devil, and you can't get away from them right now. And so I, I'm not talking about these forced relationships that are forced on you. It could be school as well in the classroom. And so whether it's work or, or at your school or maybe even your own family, These forced relationships, people who hate the devil and you're associated with them, I'm not talking about those, but the ones that you choose, what are you really drawn to? Your true friends will determine the direction and the quality of your life. They have that kind of power over you. The question is, do you believe this? And so I go back to my original question, who are your friends? There is a mirror verse in the New Testament, Proverbs 13, 20, the mirror in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15.33. Let me read both of them to you again. Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Here's 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I want to talk about how we build relationships because I think it's important to understand how it happens dynamically or organically. It's really straightforward. The kind of people that we choose as our friends are people who accept us. It's really that simple. You gravitate toward people who love you, people who approve you, people who who accept you. That's That's how it works. We don't We don't move toward or gravitate toward people who are disapproving and rejecting. To be rejected is not how you choose relationships. How many of your long-term sustained relationships do you have that are rejecting, disapproving, and unaccepting? Well, we just don't have those. I'm talking about real friends. Not This goes back to not acquaintances or forced relationships. Because the truth is, you you could be married to a person who has rejected you. I know there are many of you that are hearing that right now. It's like, well, I have I have a long term relationship of of someone who's rejecting and disapproving, and it's my spouse. Well, yes, that's a forced relationship that you can't get out of. And I mentioned also work and and classroom being two more, but. Some of you cannot be friends even with your family members because you are a Christian, and they are not. 
That's what I was saying earlier. After God regenerated me, I wasn't drawn toward my family members. I wasn't associating with them the way we used to associate because now I'm walking in the light and they're walking in darkness. Approval and acceptance are big players when it comes to making and sustaining relationships. Imagine trying to make friends with someone who is consistently rejecting you. You wouldn't. You couldn't. I mean, in time, you'd walk away from them. It would be like oil and water. But if you were with a person who accepted you, it is possible to seek and sustain that kind of relationship. We even base our relationship on God, on his acceptance of us. And that's the only way that we can have a relationship with him. He approves us. He accepts us through the finished work of his son. Otherwise, we would be walking a different path from the Lord. Seeking relationships based on approval, it's not, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing. Sometimes the desire for approval, acceptance, can have sinful power over us. Let's say that you have a a small group of friends and you go into uh, that relationship with that small group of friends and you fear their rejection. You fear of being disapproved by that small group. If you go into a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a group of friends, fearing being rejected by them, it would kill the biblical possibilities of that group. You could not be a biblical small group because fear will always rear its ugly head. And because of your fear of rejection, it'll be hard to be honest. It'll be hard to be vulnerable. It'll be hard to be transparent. You'll always be superficial. But the opposite is also true. If the group purposely decides to pursue each other the way the Holy Spirit wants to lead them, you determine that you're going to walk in the Spirit. And the only thing that's going to manage you is God's opinion of you. You're going to live in His approval. You're going to live in His acceptance. You're not going to be managed by anybody in the group. Then you will have the freedom to be a gospel-shaped community, and you will find yourself being transformed into the person of Jesus Christ as well as the group. Let me ask you a question with this in mind. Are you more concerned with being accepted in your group? Or are you more concerned with pursuing Christ in your group? If you're more concerned with the opinions of the people in the group, you'll be managed by them. If you're more concerned about God's opinion of you, you will seek to follow Him and and to do His will at all times. So how you answer the question that I just asked you will determine the spiritual quality of your relationships. The point of having a group of friends should be for everybody in that group to pursue life with God together. If your friends are not helping you to pursue life with God together, you seriously need to rethink the quality of your relationships. How are your friends helping you to become more like Jesus Christ There is only one thing that can penetrate your group and can divide it and can uh, neutralize it and even kill it. 
If you want to do life together with a small group, if you want to do life together with a group of friends and you want to pursue God wholeheartedly, then you have to come to terms with the thing that will kill it more than anything else, and, and that is sin. I know we don't like to talk about it. We don't like talking about the S word, but the truth is sin is the great antagonist in our lives, and it will take the life right out of you, and it will take the life right out of your friendships. You cannot ignore sin because sin does not ignore you. You must meet your sin and the sin of others head on. Do you and your friends ignore the obvious things in each other's lives that you really need to be discussing? You know, this is the difference that I was talking about earlier. You can have a group that's based on superficiality, and you never never go deep in that group because you're fear, you, you fear being rejected by someone in the group. You fear of being an outcast, and so you keep it superficial, but you see things in the lives of those in the group, and you never discuss those things. Do you and your friends take sin seriously? How serious are you taking sin? You see, sin insults the spirit of grace. While God's grace does not give us the freedom to sin, it does provide us with the freedom from sin. Now, the fool would say, quote, I know you saved me, and I, don't, I know I don't have to sin, but I'm going to sin anyway. This kind of attitude mocks God. It mocks His gospel. It mocks His grace. Grace does not minimize sin. Grace does not pretend it doesn't exist. Neither does grace redefine what sin is. Grace allows us to talk about sin. Grace gives us the power to deal with the very thing that harms us, which is sin. Your community your circle of friends, you, me, we have a sin problem. Sin is more pandemic than you might think. It's not, it's not compartmentalized cancer that attacks only one part of the body of Christ. Sin is pervasive. It will infect the entire body if you allow it. I mean, let me give you an illustration of this. Did you know that all relationships sin is a twofer? What I mean by that is when you sin against your spouse or when you sin against your friend, when you sin against your sibling, you're also sinning against Christ. All relationship sin is a twofer. When you sin against someone else, you're sinning against Christ. Your sin against your friend, your spouse, your family member not only hurts your family member, but it is a personal insult to Christ because it was his blood that he shed for you. But the priceless glory of God's grace is that it empowers you to remove sin from your life. Now, I know you know this. I know you understand this. You've heard some version of this before. God's grace empowers you to remove sin from your life. But did you also know that one of the reasons you struggle with ongoing sin in your life and can't quite gain victory over it is because you're trying to overcome it with limited resources. I am talking about someone attempting to overcome the power of sin alone. One of the biggest neglects in the church today is the lack of understanding about how sanctification happens in the context of community. We all need the right companions in our fight against sin. 
This is why when you go back to that sheet, that mental sheet of paper uh, with a stick figure in the middle of it and all your friends around you, if you don't have the right friends surrounding you, then whatever you struggle with, you will struggle with it alone. Let me give you a few illustrations, four of them. Biff wanted to overcome his addiction to medication before anyone found out about it. Bud wanted to overcome his anger without his friends finding out. Mabel wanted to sweep her adultery under the rug, hoping it would go away. Marge wanted to pretend everything was okay between her and her husband. And while their lives may have had some sanctification success, while they may have had some small victories along the way, it was more like a roller coaster with several starts and stops along the way. You'll never humble yourself to the seriousness of sin your own way, by yourself. There are many things that you can do by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them. This truth is one of the biggest deceptions of sin. It pushes you farther into the corner of isolation. Who knows you? Do you have people? Do you have companions in your life speaking into it at the level of your heart where it truly matters? Are you willing to be that honest, that vulnerable, that 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 <laughs> that transparent, that open with your friends. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says about this in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. The Hebrew writer says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I would encourage you to memorize that verse. It is, it is so profound. It is two sentences. It's Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. What the Hebrew author is doing is he's warning us, just in case there is, a evil, there is evil working in our hearts. An unbelieving heart in this verse is a morally confused heart. That's what the Hebrew writer is talking about. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. A morally confused heart. Is your heart morally confused? If so, you're on a slow track to a hard conscience. He says, but exhort one another today, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. If, sin. If you have a morally confused heart, you're on the slow track to a hard conscience. The sinful progression of a morally confused heart leads to an increasing case-hardening effect on a person's conscience. Your conscience is your highest level of morality. It is your moral thermostat. If your conscience becomes hardened, it will become increasingly difficult for you to discern good from evil. I have counseled many men who are harsh, angry, and demanding to their wives. They are doing things now that they would never have dreamed of doing when they were dating or first married. The progression of sin has taken hold of their hearts. They are morally confused, and the heart hardening effect of sin is rolling over them. 
and now they are meaner, meaner than they would ever have thought about being when they first started dating. When you minimize, ignore, justify, blame your sin away, it will grow bigger. It does not disappear, though you may wish it so. It gets bigger. That is sin's progression. Eventually, it will control you if you allow it. The Hebrew writer is making an appeal for believers, for companions, to come alongside each other, to do battle with the deceitfulness of sin. Are you inviting people to speak into your life to help you adjust sin's progression? How often do you think you need this kind of input in your life? How often are you getting this kind of exhortative input? The title of the podcast is, How Do Your Friends Help You to Mature in Christ? You're looking at the circle that surrounds you, and you're trying to identify those who are helpful and those who are not helpful. Paul was aware that he was the foremost of all the sinners in his life, as he said in 1 Timothy 1.15. It would stand the reason that from his perspective, he knew he needed someone to rescue himself from himself. According to Paul, he was his biggest sinner. And though I could make a case against all the mean people in my life, and I could probably talk about it in such a way that I could convince some of you that if these mean people were different, I would be a better person, but that would be a lie. I would be manipulating you and manipulating my own self, hardening my own conscience to, a, to where I couldn't see the truth, that, that the truth is that I am the meanest person that I know from my perspective. The person who needs rescuing is me. Without question, I am my biggest problem. I am the biggest troublemaker in my life. I desperately need people to come alongside me every day to speak into my life so that I can more effectively glorify God. If they don't, if, if, if you're not like this, you're either too proud to... If, you're, if, you do not, if you're not positioning yourself to speak hard things into the life of others, you're too proud to speak the truth humbly, or you're too proud to receive the truth humbly. If you're not positioning yourself in the lives of other companions to speak into their lives and for them to speak into your life, you're not taking the gospel seriously. The gospel says, I don't have anything to prove, and I don't have anything to protect. Are you still trying to prove your worth? If so, you miss the gospel. The gospel says you'll never be worthy of God's approval. Are you still trying to protect your reputation? The gospel says you put the Son of God on the cross, on Golgotha's hill. Golgotha's hill is sounding an alarm that says you are wicked. You did this. You'll, your, your reputation stands in ruins already. The best thing you can do is get over yourself and fling yourself into a small group of companions who are serious about the war for sin and the war that sin is taking on each other's lives and begin to fight for the good of each other in God's glory. If you are discipling someone or if superficiality is choking the life out of your relationships, I urge you to give them this podcast, give them this article, challenge them, help press these truths of what I'm saying into their hearts with the prayer that they will take their sin seriously. If they do take these things seriously, then envision them how to find a, a small group of like-minded friends who, who 
are only concerned about God's acceptance of them and have a desire to kill the sin that it, that can destroy lives and that they want to help each other to do the same. And you help them to seek out these right companions. And if you do that, every member in this group, all of your friends can grow in in Christ-likeness. Help them to re-examine their friendships and to pursue these relationships. Teach them how to humbly assess how their friends are serving them in their battle with sin. Show them how to make a difference in the lives of these friends. I want to finish the podcast with the way that I began it. The title of the podcast is, How Do Your Friends Help You to Mature in Christ? Who is surrounding you? Question number one, who are your friends? Who are your friends? It'd probably be a real good exercise if you do pull out that piece of paper and put your little stick figure person in the middle of it and then write out who are your friends and surround yourself with them. Then number two, how are they helping you to overcome sin? And then number three, are you pressing into your relationships because you hate the sin in your life and you hate the sin in their life too? Are you doggedly determined to make a difference with those in your sphere of influence? Those are the kind of friends that you want. I've said to some people that if you die with just one of those people in your life, you'll die a rich person. Most people don't take relationships that seriously. Most people don't want to be that vulnerable, uh, that open and honest within their relationships, and they choose to live a life of superficiality. I hope God will... Uh, prod you. I hope he will motivate you to uh, find that kind of person, at least one other person in your life that would be that serious about your relationship with Christ and you spur one another on to love and good deeds. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.